production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Jacob Goldstein is an American journalist, writer and was longtime host of NPR's Planet Money. With a special interest in finance, Jacob has spent many years researching how money is a made-up thing that has evolved over time to suit humanity's changing needs. My conversation with Jacob offers useful insights into how our generation's media can help but also hinder lasting transformation the way money forms part of our belief system, and of course, our obvious love for the Netflix series Succession. I think if you're like helping some small number of people, you know, if you're making yourself useful, being decent to yourself, it doesn't seem that ambitious, but it's hard. That's what I really believe. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Jacob Goldstein is the author of the book Money, The True Story of a Made-Up Thing. He's also an executive producer at Pushkin Industries and host of the new podcast, What's Your Problem? More than anything, this is a deeply personal tale of a search for purpose beyond oneself and what it means to devote your talents in service of a better world. My hope is that this conversation moves you towards work that ultimately is more meaningful and gives your life more purpose, flow and joy. Jacob Goldstein, you've had a phenomenal career. You're a journalist at the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, as well as many other places, and you were the host of the very popular podcast, Planet Money. I'd like to know a bit about your childhood and where your interest in money and finance started. You know, my interest in money and finance didn't come until long after my childhood and my protracted adolescence even. I was you know, in my 30s, really, when I got interested in money. Uh, gr- growing up, you know, my parents were, like, they weren't hippies, but they were kind of hippie adjacent, you know? They yes. were, like, not into money. Like, we always had enough money, but, like, we were raised to, like, don't focus on money, you know? Get a job that you believe in. Learn how to not spend money. And to the extent I was kind of preoccupied with money, it was, like, learning to not spend money, learning to live without making a lot of money. And so it was only when the financial crisis hit, by which point, you know, in 2008, by which point I was well into my 30s that I started to be like, oh, money is kind of interesting. And tell me, how was it being raised in a sort of hippie family? What what sort of things did they do when they raised you? No, I, I, maybe I'm being too strong. I mean, it wasn't like I grew up on a commune or something. It was It was more the subtle... Uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of people grew up like I grew up, right? I mean, one framing, I'll tell you, that's really interesting to me that I've heard as an adult. I heard somebody ask, 
did you grow up in a scarcity household or an abundance household? And like, I, it was late in my life when I heard that framing, but it was like a lightning bolt when I heard it, you know? And like, again, we always had plenty. Like we were well off. My mom was a doctor. We were not poor, but the feeling was of scarcity. The feeling was, oh, you better be careful. Do you really want that? You know, do you need it? And like, that's a very reasonable way to be. Uh, there's sort of an environmental framing of like, do you really want to consume that thing? There's the basic financial thing of like, well, if you buy that, then you can't buy something else. So you'll have less money in the bank. But it was only when I was an adult that I realized there's this whole other way that yes. other people are where they just like, well, if they can buy a thing, they buy a thing. And like, that is super foreign to me and still is, frankly. A lot of the Jewish families, especially ones that came even if they're not Holocaust survivors, they had the mentality of that World War II, they knew people and all that stuff. And I remember my grandma, she wasn't even, she wasn't in the Holocaust as such. She came from Austria to Australia, I think when she was three or four. But when we'd stay over, when my parents would go away and my brother and I would stay over there and I'd bring my lunch home, she would reuse the plastic that we wrapped our sandwiches in and it was every morsel was always used and it was that kind of scarcity mentality and I wonder do you think that that had an effect on your parents when they were bringing you up? The historical event from that period that I think of more than the Holocaust is the depression, right? Uh, My parents were born after that. My parents were born in the 1940s, but certainly like my grandparents' generation, they were all in the United States at that time. And the, the depression was sort of the formative thing for them. And certainly people who lived through the depression, I think, often have that, you know, oh, I'm going to take this free butter from the restaurant because maybe I'll need butter tomorrow kind yes. of scarcity mindset. And how do you bring up your kids now knowing that your parents brought you up with a scarcity mindset? That's a good question. You know, no one has asked me that before. Um it's it's a balancing act, I guess, is the answer, right? Like, I want them to be a little bit less neurotic about money than I am, but but still, you know, know the value of a dollar, is, as the you know, in the old saying. So, like, that's a that's a, a real balancing act, and one I try and be aware of of you know getting that one right, but it's hard. There's so much emotion attached to money, right? It feels like this very rational thing, but really we're not rational about it. I think I'm a rational person. I know a lot about money, but it's very hard to be rational about money. And I wonder, because I know the way that I was brought up is we always worked from a very young age. That was something my dad instilled in us and he's a hard worker and something I'm really grateful to him for, always knowing the value of money in that sense Is that important to you with your kids? That's interesting. I mean, in a weird way, I think maybe, and again, nobody's asked me this before, so I'm just thinking it through (laughs) as you ask it, but uh, I like it. Uh, In a weird way, I think I somewhat separate work and money, right? Like, I really believe in work. I believe in work as a source of meaning in life, weirdly, right? Like, if you can find work that you believe in, or even just like, cooking for other people, right? Like gardening, whatever, doing things that are like, that are work of one sort or another, whether it's a job or taking care of a family, having some kind of organizing principle that is not just about you or about pleasure seeking. I think that's 
in a weird way, good for you, right? Yes. I think it's it's been helpful to me in life to have work that I care about as a way to organize my energy in the world. You know, I have separated that somewhat from money, right? Like, obviously, I worked for National Public Radio, you know, the the yes. sort of BBC of the United States, the ABC, I should say, of the United States uh, for a long time. So clearly, I wasn't like trying to maximize my income <laughs> in my career, right? Uh, but I believe in work kind of more for its own sake than for the money. How was it like working at the Wall Street Journal, being such a big media conglomerate in the United States? Uh, well, it was uh, it was interesting. I mean, um, I got hired at the Wall Street Journal back in the aughts to start a blog. I'm that age. I'm the age that the Wall Street Journal hired me to start a blog. And... <laughs> Um, you know, at that time, blogs were this new thing, certainly new for big newspapers. And I went there thinking that the blog would be like my my route to writing for the paper, right? Big, fancy newspaper job. But it was really fun writing the blog. It was kind of off the radar of the sort of important people at the paper. So it was like me and an editor, and we could kind of do whatever we wanted. And I really uh, came to enjoy that freedom. Like it was a kind of creative freedom. We could be goofy and make jokes and do things you could never do in the paper. And so that was like a big deal to me, right? And so then I went to NPR from there. And similarly, I went to this show Planet Money, which was, you know, it was 2010 when I went there. And so podcasts were still new and people at NPR weren't really paying that much attention to podcasts. And they kind of let Planet Money do whatever it, whatever we wanted. So that feeling of like, I'm just like with the weirdos here off yeah. in the corner making jokes has really suited me through through my career. Uh, it's just a good fit for me. And tell me, my work history is not dissimilar to yours working with a big media company in Australia. And I wonder now, being in the US at this time and having these huge media outlets that that you guys do, a lot of them well, a lot of them being led by Australian family, the Murdochs. And I wonder, what is your view of the media, especially at the moment? And also, what sort of media do you ingest day to day? Certainly easier to answer the second part of that question than the first. Um, uh, yeah, let me start with the easy part, then we can get to the hard part. So what kind of media do I ingest day to day? I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts for work. Um, but also for fun. Um, I mean, there's one called Smartless that's just like some American like movie stars interviewing other like media film people. I just enjoy it. I just think they're yeah. funny. I like that show. Um, you know, I I look at Twitter an embarrassing amount. I read you know the big U.S. papers, the the New York Times and the Journal. I cover you know money and finance. I read Bloomberg. Uh, I still read books. You, you know, I can tell you some media that I ingested recently that I love. Yes. I'm curious if you ingested it and what you thought of it if you did. Did you watch the Beatles documentary, oh, Get Back? I haven't I, watched it yet. I loved it. I'm not like a huge Beatles fan. Like, I like the Beatles. When I was younger, you know, I, I was pretty into some of their songs. But like, it's really interesting I mean, as a person who, you know, cr creates media for a living, you might find it interesting. Yes. Um, because it's it's kind of meta, right? Like, weirdly, 
it's it's a documentary, but inside this documentary, somebody is making a documentary, right? This guy in the whatever late 60s was making this documentary about the Beatles. And you see him too, and you see him talking to the Beatles about it. Wow. So it's like there's him trying to make the movie. And then the other really just simple but amazing thing is you just see the Beatles writing songs in front of you, right? Like wow. they're not talking about writing songs. Like he's just like writing get back. Like Paul McCartney is just like screwing around on the guitar, making up Get Back. And you just watch that. So as like a person who tries to do creative things, right? Certainly never in this life on the level of the Beatles or anywhere near it. But like, you know, it's cool to see, right? It's cool to see the thing happening. I actually watch quite a bit of Netflix as well. I do enjoy that. And I'm watching Succession at the moment. I'm very behind the rest of the world. I love Succession. So I'm moving up to season two. But that's what like inspired me to write some of these questions because I was thinking about how you're in America and I want to know now the second half of the question of what sure. you think about... You can just talk about succession. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's this Australian girl plays, Sarah Snook plays the main guy's daughter. Oh, is yes. she Australian? Yeah, I didn't know that. She's a very good American accent. Yeah, there's a British guy who plays her husband who also has a very good American accent. Ah, I didn't realize he was British. Yeah. The cousin, again, I don't know the names. He's amazing. <laughs> cousin Greg, amazing. He's amazing. That show is great. And if you're only on season two, you've got a lot of good stuff ahead of you. What do you think about American media today? I think there's a lot of good stuff and a lot of bad stuff. One nice thing about American media today is you can choose, yes. right? Like. Every day, a lot of really smart people are writing and creating really good things. And so, you know, there is clearly a downside to living in a world where everybody can be in their filter bubble and, you know, get some stream of propaganda or whatever all the time. I understand that is bad in many ways. But I feel like as a sort of curious person uh, who is able to sort of seek out different kinds of media... I feel fortunate. Like there's lots of really smart, really hardworking people making good stuff. So I know that there's some sort of civic kind of national problems and the media is, is, you know, problematic in certain corners. I don't know what to do about that. But as an individual reading things, watching things, listening to things, I feel very fortunate to live in an era where there's lots of good stuff to read and watch and listen to. Don't you think being obviously a fellow podcaster, that that's such an amazing thing about the rise of podcasting as well. So obviously I've been in radio for over a decade and, you know, radio is wonderful as well. But then when podcasting came about, you could have these long form conversations because most re- radio shows, well, at least here, it's like six to seven minute breaks. And I always got quite frustrated. I thought, oh my God, we've just had this amazing guest on. We They could only talk to him for such a short period of time. And even if he was on for two breaks, which rarely happens, well, 12 minutes. My colleagues have said you're really careful about your words, but at the same time, there's just so much to talk about. And then podcasting comes about, and I know there's different forms of podcasting, short, long, but take the one that we're doing today. You can just have these rich, in-depth conversations and you as a listener can choose if you like cooking, if you like fashion, if you like money, if you like self-improvement. And it just gives you this wide range of media that you're able to pick and choose what you consume, which is, I think, to be unbelievable. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, in in working on this podcast that I'm starting, I, I'm, it's pretty tech-oriented, so I've been listening to more tech shows than I have in the past. 
And I found this one, like, it's not like I discovered it. He's really popular. It's, it's, it's this guy named Lex Friedman, who himself has a tech background. And he interviews tech people. I mean, he's interviewed Elon Musk and then less famous, but, you know, pretty technical yes. people, a lot of engineers for like hours, for like two hours. And they have these very wonky conversations. And they're the kind that, you know, working at a place like you work or like I have worked, any editor would say, wait, this is too wonky and too long and nobody's going to listen to this. But like, a million people listen to this guy's podcast, right? Like these very long, in-depth, complicated conversations about like robotics and AI, which it, I, it, I mean, it does a few things. One, it makes me humble, right? All these people who have some set of rules about like what a show or an interview should or shouldn't be, like those rules are kind of made up, right? They're not yes. based in like empirical studies. And two, it's cool. Like, this is good, this show this guy's making. It's really smart. Like, there must be a lot of smart, curious people in the world, which is good news, right? Yeah. And I, yeah, I absolutely love it for that because I think you just, you get the audience that you want. And then a lot of the time they stay with you because they they absolutely love it. So then a lot of the podcasts are able to build a beautiful community, which I think is really nice for everyone. I hope so. Do you feel like you've done that? That sounds dreamy. I do. Especially when you're in the field that I am in, which is, you know, that kind of interviewing people who are great like yourself, then people feel very inspired by that. And I think when people feel inspired and going back to what you first said about a job, when you've got meaning and purpose in your life. And I feel that this podcast gives me that and it inspires a lot of people to then get that as well. Then you do naturally uh, acquire a nice community around you. And I feel very blessed for that. Do you have any tips for me? I'm starting this show. Uh, like, I would love to have that feeling out of it. What should I do? Well, I think, I mean, you're obviously, your new podcast is what's your problem and... Yes, thank you for saying the name. I guess step one is say the name of the podcast. What's your problem? I, I don't know so much about the content as such, but I think it's it's just being yourself and and being real and having open and honest conversations and being able to help people within the podcast, which you'll be doing, and then being able to expand that on social media is always a good thing as well. So... I think in this day and age, having social different social media platforms to, to be able to put snippets of the, the podcast on always works well. Uh-huh. What I wanted to ask you is another question to do with money and what's going on in the world at the moment, because obviously, you know, money and finance is your background. But with everything I was thinking about in Russia and the Ukraine and seeing at the moment with that a lot of the countries are cutting off the credit cards and stuff to Russia. And that obviously made me think a lot about money. And I wonder, does money in your mind mean survival to you? Because for the first time after seeing this, I really thought, God, this this may make a difference. I mean, one key thing in Russia to keep in mind is the Russians are still selling hundreds of millions of dollars of oil to the rest of the world and getting money in exchange, right? So in this particular case, it's, you know, it's, they're not entirely cut off. They're not as cut off as maybe it sounds. But yeah, I do think we're at a point in the world now where we all rely on each other so much in such a dispersed way, right? Countries 
need other countries to survive. Individuals need other individuals. Companies need other companies. And the, you know, the, the water that flows between them, the thing that allows all of that interconnectedness is money, yeah. right? Like no company can on its own make the thing it makes, right? I mean, even a company making something as ethereal as as podcasts or radio has to buy equipment, has to, you know, uh, uh, just have simple, you know, computers and microphones and, you know, everybody needs food and food gets grown all around the world. And so at a really basic level, everybody depends on everybody else now and money is the way that dependence is sort of uh, plays out. Yes. Yeah, because I just found it really interesting because you're seeing things that maybe we haven't seen in a long time with this war. You, uh, Jacob, have written a book on money called Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. And there's a really interesting chapter within that about accumulating more money and you speak about the scarcity mentality. So many of us have that around money and the idea, which I find really interesting, which is someone else accumulating more means that you won't be able to accumulate more, which I think almost goes back to that Darwinism era where it's that real lack mentality. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, right, so there is this basic intuition I feel like a lot of us have. I think I used to have it, uh, which is if somebody else is, which is if somebody is getting more, if one person is getting more stuff, more money, then somebody else must be getting less, right? The intuition is that there is a fixed amount of stuff in the world or that there is that the world is a zero-sum game. There's some amount of points. And if somebody gets more points, then somebody else must have less points. And one of the great insights of economics, the, the one that to me was the biggest and most exciting, you know, I didn't discover economics until I was a, a grown-up, uh, the big insight for me is that that intuition is false. Like, in fact, everybody can get richer. Everybody can have more, more food, more clothes, more stuff. And not only is that theoretically true, I mean, if you look at the history of the world in the last couple hundred years, that is what's happened, right? Yeah. If you think of our, say, great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents, you know, you go back to the, like, 1800s, not all that long ago, in human history, very close to now, the material, you know, standard of living of almost everybody in the world was so much lower than it is now for most of the people in the world today, yeah. right? And the way you the way you pull off that trick, the way you raise living standards for almost everybody is basically by figuring out better ways to do stuff, right? By figuring out ways that you go work for a day in the fields and instead of, you know, growing one bushel of corn, you grow 10 bushels of corn or whatever, right? Yeah. You have productivity gains. These these boring sounding things, productivity, efficiency, technology, like what they add up to in a meaningful human way is rising standards of living for everybody. And And frankly, that is the... The idea uh, that made me want to start this new podcast, mm. uh, What's Your Problem? It's really about people who are trying now still to figure out better ways to do stuff, you know? And today that means 
whatever. It means like figuring out ways to use drones to deliver medicine, like first in sub-Saharan Africa, and now they figured that out, and they're trying to figure out how to do it in the United States, or trying to trying to get a language app that can teach people a language, you know, in the developing world for free on their phone. Uh, you know, just ways to essentially make things cheaper for people so that people can have, you know, more abundance. Why do you think that we still have this scarcity mentality? It, it's like... I, I wonder why, from everything we know, and you telling us just then that someone accumulating money doesn't mean that someone else won't be able to do the same. Why do you think in our day and age that still exists? So I think there's a few, I have a few guesses. Um, one is like the very long range one and one is a kind of short range one. And I think the very long range one is more important. Um, the very long-range one is, until a couple of hundred years ago, until the Industrial Revolution, basically, it was largely true that if somebody got more, somebody else got less, right? The, this state of the world we've lived in for a couple hundred years where there's technological progress and most people are better off than their grandparents were, this is a novel thing. This is not the normal state of affairs, right? Yeah. When you look at 5,000 years of human history, you see like... It kind of sucked forever. And then around 1800, at least starting in, you know, Western Europe, basically, things started getting better and kept getting better. And then it spread to other parts of the world. And amazingly, it hasn't stopped yet. We're still on this sort of getting better train. But it's not the natural state of the world. So I think that's part of the reason why we don't feel like it's true, why we feel like the world is a zero-sum game, because it usually was, yes. right? And it's kind of new culturally. I think that's really the big answer. There's a, another piece of it, though, that I think is interesting. And that is, in, certainly in the United States, in much of the developed world, over the last few decades, there was this period where uh, rich people were getting richer. The people who had a lot yeah. were getting more. And people who weren't rich were kind of staying the same right? It was basically stagnation yes. for most people and then gains for the rich. And so you didn't have the feeling of everybody getting better off together, right? So an important sort of corollary of the everybody can have more money idea is it doesn't mean everybody will have more money, yeah. right? And so you need to have these gains, these productivity gains, and then you need to have the sort of fruits of the gains uh, widely shared, and in the long run, that happens. But there are these periods like we've been living through where you don't see so much of the fruits of the gains shared. Now, I should say, in the last few years, like before the pandemic, certainly in the U.S., which I, which I know, I'm sorry to say, I know better than the Australian economy, you did see people like across the income distribution, people with lower income, seeing big gains yes. in their wages. So like that was good. That was promising. And I hope that continues. work that you've done, Jacob, I wonder if you believe that having more money makes you happier. There is a, a sort of, economists have tried to figure out the answer to this and other academics have tried to figure out the answer. And like the part we know for sure is if you have almost no money, if you have very little money, then getting more money, in fact, does make you happier, right? Yeah. People's, as people's, 
with very low income get higher income. On average, they get happier. Um, there seems to be some debate about what happens once you get to a sort of what would be like middle class in the developed world. Like, do you get happier after that? You know, if you're like rich, are you happier than if you're middle class? Or yeah. if you're really rich, are you happier than somebody who's like normal rich? And the old answer used to be no. Um, it doesn't seem like it. But then people have gone back and done more research. Actually, Justin Wolfers, an Australian economist who's at the University of Michigan now, had a, had a paper, I think, counter to that, saying basically you do keep getting happier as you get richer. So um, certain, the one that's clear is like, on average, people with very little money get a lot happier if they get some money yes. that we know. I think a lot of the time from my research, it's been as long as you have shelter and good health conditions around you and uh, able to pay for health insurance and have the ability, if you do get ill, to have those services, then it gets to a certain level that it doesn't make you that much happier and sometimes can make you unhappy, as we've seen with a lot of very wealthy people. It just reminded me, yes. and again, I'm only up to the second season of Succession in the episode where Cousin Greg says, well, I'll get $5 million from my grandpa. And then they say, well, no, no, you'll be the poorest rich person. <laughs> and then they start telling him reasons why $5 million actually will not make him happier. Anyway, not that that's based on anything, but I found that to be quite amusing. Yes, yes. There's that amazing scene I don't want to make this the succession podcast, but you started <laughs> it. There's that amazing scene where uh, cousin Greg is out to dinner with Tom and Tom, they're, they're doing yes. this thing at some like crazy fancy restaurant where you eat these songbirds and you have to cover yes. your head with a napkin. It's just an amazing scene. And Tom is telling Greg why it's great to be rich. Mm. He's like, there's no rules. You could do whatever you want. And it's just a beautiful goofy scene. Yeah, that's but so yeah, true. I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know if I buy it. Like those, that show is certainly a show about profoundly wealthy, profoundly unhappy people, oh. which might be part of the joy in watching it. Well, that's it. I agree. And I think, you know, from a lot of the people that I've interviewed, a lot being self-improvement people who have mentored a lot of billionaires and TV stars and sports people, they've found that a lot of the money has actually brought them to be quite unhappy so yeah. I feel like it is quite an interesting concept. Well, you, you do wonder, what, I mean, when people who, you know, who, like become ultra wealthy or ultra famous is when they're self-made, especially, like there is a question of like, did the money make them unhappy or did they have some like hole inside of them? Yeah. Some fundamental original unhappiness. And they're like, well, okay, a hundred million didn't make me happy, but a billion, that'll make me happy. Yes. Right. So maybe the causality is reversed, right? Maybe they're billionaires because they've always been unhappy. Well, it's interesting. I remember one person who who mentored a lot of very wealthy people said, when you're at a level where you're in the middle, you think you still have that that thought that if I strive for more that will make me happy. So you, you, you know, you still have that get up and go. Whilst people who are at the top already and who are so unhappy think I have everything and I'm miserable. And that yeah. can be an absolute start of something that can be quite, quite detrimental well, in to a way, people. It, it goes back to that part of the conversation we were having before about 
distinguishing between work and money, yes. right? Like, I really believe in, in you know, I, I feel very lucky that I've found work that I, that I care about, right? Uh, and it, when I was in my 20s, I sort of didn't know what to do with myself. You know, I got out of college and I just didn't know what to do with myself. And like, I was unhappy. <laughs> like, you know, I lived in nice, you know, I, I went to the mountains and I tried different things and like, just finding work that I care about, it means, it means a tremendous amount to me. And I feel very fortunate to have found that. Do you remember the first job you had that you really enjoyed and you thought, yeah, I can feel that this is going to be something that's really good? I mean, so I was living in Montana, which is this, it's a, it's a, it's a state in the middle of the United States yeah. in the Rocky Mountains. Um, it's beautiful. And I was doing different things there. I was a backcountry instructor for juvenile delinquents and I was summarizing deposition transcripts for this oh, wow. legal company. Just, I was just whatever. I was just, you know, in my 20s trying to figure out what to do. And I got a job at the newspaper in that town, the Bozeman Daily Chronicle. And like, uh, that was the first sort of real job that really kind of took, you know, like I go over to the courthouse every day and I just liked it. And, you know, I tried being a freelancer and I didn't think I wanted to work at the Bozeman Daily Chronicle for the rest of my career, but, but it was a good paper and I was learning a lot and I was working every day. And that was the first job where I felt like I was sort of getting traction. Yes. And I think it's true. I think having a job that you care about, like we mentioned before, I think, oh, it, there's just this vibrancy. Yeah. I remember talking to Simon Sinek on this podcast and he was saying, if you, you need to follow what you love. And if you're following what you love, the money will eventually come. And I just believe that to be true. I think it, it just always kind of works out like that. I feel very fortunate that it has worked out for me. <laughs> I love how you speak in the book about gold being fiction. And it's a really interesting concept. And I've often, even before reading it in your book, knowing that idea that even with diamonds, the whole idea of them being valuable is the fact that there is a lack of them or they hold them back on purpose so that they make them extremely valuable. I'd love to get your take on that. Well, so, yeah, I mean, the, the basic idea of the book is that money is fiction, right? Yes. Money is a thing where everybody just gets together and without really realizing it, just kind of makes up a bunch of rules. And it's like, okay, this is what money's going to yeah. be. And you know, gold is an interesting case because, like, obviously gold itself is not fiction. Gold is a real thing that is, you know, older than human beings and will exist after the last human being is gone. So gold itself is real. Uh, but the moneyness of gold is the made-up part, right? Um, and yeah, diamonds similarly. I mean, I don't know the story that well, but but apparently diamonds in particular were sort of invented by by diamond people who, you know, got got people in the movies to give diamond rings as, uh, uh, you know, as engagement rings to sort of create this idea and have done a clearly a very good job of, of controlling both supply and demand. And if you can control supply and demand, that's pretty good. Yeah. Now, one thing that's interesting now with diamonds, and again, I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that um, synthetic diamonds have gotten better and better. And so that now they're quite hard to tell apart. You can get a really yeah. good synthetic diamond that it, that looks quite a lot like a real diamond. And so that's an interesting thing to think about, right? Um, what What is that going to do to the value? And will anybody care? I don't know, but it's a fun, it's a fun mm. twist in an old story. 
It is. We spoke about the fact that you have your new podcast called What's Your Problem, which is, as we said, a tech podcast. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, uh, like I was saying before, it it came out of the the sort of big, exciting idea that, uh, you know, figuring out how to do things better, how to make stuff more efficiently is in the long run, the way everybody can be better off, right? Like that's the the big idea behind it. The sort of narrowly, I mean, essentially I'm talking to people who are, you know, at work solving kind of big, interesting, usually, but not always technical problems, right? So, um, I've mentioned the drone delivery guy is amazing. Like this guy, you know, is this robot, roboticist, robot engineer, and uh, sort of looking for a problem to solve. And his wife was an epidemiologist. And she was like, yeah, I, I know that in the developing world, she was from Latin America. And she's like, in the developing world, often just getting the medicines and the supplies mm. to where the patients are is really hard. Like the countries will have the things, you know, in the capital city, but they can't get it, whatever, over the mountain to where the clinic is. And um, this guy and his his partner, his company, they they uh, talked to the health minister in Rwanda, and she was like, "Yeah, this is this is a problem for us." And they wound up sort of building from scratch these drones, these like plane airplane style drones that now fly hundreds of flights a day in Rwanda and Ghana. And now they're trying to expand to the U.S. And a really interesting twist in in that story is there is this problem in the U.S. that I did not know existed. And that's really interesting and surprising, which is the way airspace in the United States is regulated is actually much more kind of old-fashioned than the way it works in, say, Rwanda and Ghana. There's, yeah, uh, yeah wow, right. That's what I said when the guy told me. Uh, uh, there's a rule in many countries that seems super reasonable to me that airplanes basically have to have a transponder in them, you know, a, a thing that allows anyone with a certain kind of device to identify that there's an airplane there. So you can put something in your drone so you know, oh, there's an airplane there. Weirdly, that rule doesn't exist in the U.S. You know, the U.S. like considered creating that rule, but basically there was a sort of kind of libertarian freedom, you know, cowboys in the sky movement that said like, oh, you can't make me put a transponder in my plane. And so planes can fly in the U.S. without transponders, which means it's way harder to build drones, you know, commercial drones that fly around. So I think that show, that's a good example of the kind of thing I'm yes. interested in, right? People who are actually trying to do the thing, not like the theory of the thing or the, you know, academic idea about the thing, but people actually trying to do the thing, solve it, make it happen. It's exciting to me. It sounds really exciting. Sounds like a great podcast. Jacob, I would like to know, you obviously were one of the hosts on Planet Money for many years, and that was a hugely successful podcast. What made you want to leave doing something so that was so successful and to move to a whole new podcast provider to start another podcast? Yeah, I, I love Planet Money and I still love Planet Money. I'm, I'm working on something with them right now. Um, I was there for a long time is a simple part of it. I was there for more than 10 years. And, and you know, it's an exciting time in podcasts. Uh, the, all the people I started with at Planet Money have gone on to do other things. Yeah. 15 years ago now, I was like writing a blog and was just kind of like the weirdo making up a new thing. And when I got to Planet Money, it was like, we were the weirdos making up the new thing. Like that spirit is like 
fun for me and good for me at work. And so, you know, I like starting things and I like kind of making things up. And so leaving to start a new thing seemed exciting. And so far it has been. Because obviously that is taking a leap of faith to an extent. And I think that's a good thing. I've just done that in my own life, leaving the number one podcast in Australia that I was the executive producer of to move further into this area. And I wondered, like, was there any fear when you did that? I'd love to know how you felt doing that. That's a good question. You know, I think I probably stayed like maybe a little longer. (laughs) Maybe I stayed a little too long at Planet Money. I think if I'd have left four years ago, I would have been afraid. Yes. But, um, or maybe I'm just like being foolish and it's been too long since there was a real recession and maybe I should be more scared than I am. Um, I joined this company called Pushkin that uh, the writer Malcolm Gladwell co-founded a few years ago. And it's it seems like a great company so far. So I think if, you know, I was too scared to go out on my own. Yes. Like you could think of risk as like a spectrum, right? And the safest thing would be just to stay at Planet Money forever, uh, you know, big established institution and ride that out. The most risky would be like go out on my own and start a company. Yes. And that seemed like too scary. And going to Pushkin, this, you know, kind of smallish but established company, that seemed like the right amount of risk. Yes. And so... um Yeah, it feels good so far. What is a life of greatness to you? I think if you're like helping some small number of people, you know, if you're making yourself useful, being decent to yourself, Mm. it doesn't seem that ambitious, but it's hard. That's what I really believe in. Jacob Goldstein, Thank you so much for the beautiful conversation. Yeah, it was a really interesting conversation, really different in a way that I I, uh, enjoyed and appreciate. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.